At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Oh, America. I wish I could tell you that this was still America. But I've come to realize that you can't have a country without people. And there are no people here. No, my friends. This is now the United States of Zombieland. It's amazing how quickly things can go from bad to total shitstorm. See, their morals, their code, it's a bad joke. We've dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. It wasn't hard. See, madness, as you know, is like gravity. All it takes is a little push. <laughs> Those clips say it all. Should just end this episode right here. Because it's true. Because in 2020, humanity just keeps embarrassing itself even more. Allowing the mind parasite to infect it with dumber and more head-assery thoughts. But hey, keep virtual signaling about your quarantine routine, your animal crossing score, and what a terrible job the other side is doing as you reduce the world to good and bad guys in a divide-and-conquer Harry Carey. The road of hell is paved with blue check marks. Like George Orwell wrote, The more people chant about their freedom and how free they are, the more loudly I hear their chains rattling. The illusion of freedom will continue as long as it's profitable to continue the illusion. At the point where the illusion becomes too expensive to maintain, they will just take down the scenery. They will move the chairs and tables out of the way. And you will see the brick wall at the back of the theater. What a shit show this virus thingy has been. Whether the deep state or the idiocracy is behind the recent pandemonium, be assured that the real threat is the virus that comes at the end of this pandemic. The virus of greed is far more dangerous to humanity and all other life forms than anything Mother Nature can concoct. And fear and the desire for safety will make any human soulless as any virus strain. Sir, are you classified as human? Uh, negative. I am a meat popsicle. The media, our political and religious so-called leaders, celebrities, and influencers have exposed fully themselves as chiselers and narcissistic whores, the catamites of wickedness in high places, all working in tandem for a mass black mass ritual 
far greater than 9-11 or 2012. A complete human sacrifice where our souls, free will, and very cojones are fed to Mithras for one last satanic meal. Praying to the gods to have mercy on us all. The gods have no mercy, that's why they're gods. You all sold out. You sold out for entertainment instead of ecstasy. You mechanical parasites. Silent Green is people! Before Gal Gadot sings Imagine Again, stop right now and center yourself. Because as Thomas Pynchon said, if they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about answers. So this is how Liberty dies. With thunderous applause. The worst is coming, but so is the best. As you arrive to Aeon Bytnostic Radio to finally ask the right questions that only that salvific knowledge called Gnosis can midwife. We are the veterans of a thousand psychic wars, and this is the greatest war so far in this century. The game of Saturn is still the same, and we play to fucking win. We win if we stay awake and journey inward for our inner Prometheus. (laughs) Maybe not stealing fire from the gods, but toilet paper from the gods. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. The right question isn't, is there hope? Because hope is dead. And where hope dies, imagination must live. If necessity is the mother of invention, then imagination is the father of creative endeavor. And as the Cheshire Cat said... Imagination is the only weapon in the war against reality. And right now, the creator gods have weaponized reality completely, and things are only going to get weirder the rest of the year. Yes, this is a shit show, and one of the greatest psyops in the history of humanity. I don't know if it's the greatest time to be alive, but it's the greatest time to be awake. Don't be the change you want to see in the world, but be the strange you want to see in the world. If the world that we are forced to accept is false and nothing is true, then everything is possible. On the way to discovering what we love, we will find everything we hate, everything that blocks our path to what we desire. But hey, guess what? Eternity is still the same. Eternity is still there for you to take, to discover with your imagination after asking the right questions. That hasn't changed, so we can easily win the game of Saturn and embrace ecstasy instead of entertainment, unlike the mechanical parasites and that everything that you hear now contributes to turning you into a robot. And I should give a shout-out to those taking care of the least of our brothers during this crisis. Like my cousin, Hui, a biochemist in New York City who has been volunteering at a hospital. Forza y fe, 
Meus queridos, força e fé. Even the smallest person can change the course of the future. For all of you, for everyone, stay awake and stay imaginative. As the Gospel of Judah says, Already your horn has been raised, and your wrath is full, and your star passes by, and your heart is determined. Today we are canceling the apocalypse! I've mentioned fear, and I've mentioned overcoming, and I've mentioned that inward journey, which often means grokking the myths and archetypes from your unconscious that correspond to your outer situation. I can't think of anyone better to discuss this than our astral guest in this eternal now, Beth Martins, who will be sharing about her new book, Journey, a map of the archetypes to find lost purpose in a sea of meaninglessness. Very timely, indeed. Beth is a unique and remarkable individual who survived terminal cancer, survived corporate greed, and like a fiery nana, survived going down into the underworlds of her unconscious to find usable and universal archetypes to share and transform your life and ignite your creative powers to win in this war against reality. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I know Beth's book opened many doorways of perception for me. And best of all, showed me that when I unite with my authentic self or daemon, I hold no fear because it's useless. I only have space to be filled with an ocean of God. You'll realize that you've had not just one or two past or future existences, but that you were and are everybody and everything that has ever been or will ever be. Yes, things look bad right now. But when haven't they when you think about it? Nothing has changed, really. Nothing has changed. You must go inward, but you also must face the abyss and look for that rainbow bridge to the Superman that Nietzsche spoke about. And as Beth writes in her book, when you face the horrors of the universe, you're not losing your innocence, but your ignorance. The horror has always been there. Your innocence is everlasting. It's part of eternity. It's your divine spark. Stay awake, my beloved true seekers. Stay imaginative. Don't be afraid, because all you're going to lose is your ignorance in the end. The game of Saturn is the same, except the simulation is on overdrive. Fucking steroids. The awakening of any individual is still a cosmic rebellion. It's gonna be all right. <laughs> we just had a near-life experience. Humanity is completely embarrassed itself, as I said. 
But bright and inspirational individuals like Beth Martins tell me that imagination is rising, not hope. Screw hope, if there is still any alive. Why screw hope? In the myth of Pandora, nothing but an Olympus up to punish humanity... All the wraths of the Demiurge are unleashed by the alien robot Pandora, except one. One thing is left at the bottom of the jar. Hope. But it's another trick by Zeus. It's foolish, naive hope that allows the Empire to further erode our rights. I say, the Empire never ended. The Empire is the institution, the codification of derangement. It is insane and imposes its insanity on us by violence, since its nature is a violent one. No more hope, just imagination. Just tapping into our archetypes like Beth did, as you'll see more in our interview. Stay awake, stay imaginative you'll gain some actionable insights from both this interview and Beth's book. We're in this together. Nothing has changed. Thanks for being here. My name is Miguel Connor. I'm here for your escape and spirituality. And as Anthony DeMello said, spirituality is just waking up. Write your own gospel, live your own myth. Man wants chaos. In fact, he's gotta have it. Depression, strife, riots, murder, all this dread. We're irresistibly drawn to that almost orgiastic state created out of death and destruction. It's in all of us. We revel in it. Sure, the media tries to put a sad face on these things, painting them up as great human tragedies. But we all know the function of the media has never been to eliminate the evils of the world. No. Their job is to persuade us to accept those evils and get used to living with them. The powers that be want us to be passive observers. Have you seen what it's like out there, Murray? Do you ever actually leave the studio? Everybody just yells and screams at each other. Nobody's civil anymore. Nobody thinks what it's like to be the other guy. You think men like Thomas Wayne ever think what it's like to be someone like me? To be somebody but themselves? They don't. They think that we'll just sit there and take it like good little boys. That we won't werewolf and go wild. You finished? How about another joke, Murray? No, I think we've had enough of your jokes. What do you get? I don't think so. When you cross I think a mentally ill loaner with a society that abandons him and beats him like trash! Call the police, I'll Gene. tell you what you get! Call the police! You get what you fucking deserve! This is the AM by interview, and with us we have the pleasure of being joined by Beth Martins to discuss her book, Journey, a map of archetypes to find lost purpose in a sea of meaninglessness. Beth, thank you very much for coming on AM Byte. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, Miguel, for hosting me. 
Pleasure is all ours. And uh, as I mentioned, your book uh, really enjoyed it. I think our audience will enjoy the themes, the vibe, and you're a very powerful story. So can't wait to delve into this. But first, we must say hi to the archetypal Moondog. How are you doing, Vance? Uh, I'm pretty good. I got my towel with me so I can dry myself off from the sea of meaninglessness. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to culture. Welcome to culture. Always carry a towel. <laughs> good deal. Yes. Especially thinking of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You just need a towel. <laughs> but we'll have some gnosis. So, Beth, uh, really enjoyed the book. And uh, I think when I read it, I had to stop. The, with your introduction and pause for like an hour because it was so emotional. And uh, I think that's a great place to start. It seems uh, the turning point in your life to me or as you start out your book is that meeting with your doctor, the oncologist, who basically told you you're probably not going to live. Tell the audience about that. Yeah, it was... Uh let's see where where do we begin this story so i was trying to avoid my state of health i was desperately trying to um not see how sick i was i had been working in my family's firm for the better part of 6 or 7 years really most of my life but professionally as their vice president for 6 or 7 years and there had been a very slow trickle down of my life force out of my body. And again, I'm trying not to see it. I'm trying not to notice it. I was traveling to India every, every year, trying to keep up my spiritual life so I could survive the corporate thing. And then all of a sudden, it was a full stop. I found a substantial lump in my neck. I visited a surgeon and I was fully expecting to hear I was in Again, you know, denial, and I was just being a hypochondriac trying to get out of the life I felt like I couldn't get out of. And it turned out to be a stage four lymphoma. So there was, you know, the whole show stopped. My work stopped. I left the business. I finally had the reason that I needed, unfortunately, to, to leave that business. And it became a three-year fight for my life. There was uh, a second diagnosis when, you know, I had Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is actually considered fairly treatable. Uh, about 80% of the people can live through that. So they threw the book at me with all kinds of chemotherapy and uh, I didn't end up qualifying for radiation, but you name it, I was going through it. And after 11 months of chemotherapy, I was nearly dead from that and I was sick again from cancer. Although I had gone through... A, uh, a state of remission. I had a near-death experience that actually brought me back to life to a great extent, but I couldn't survive the chemo. So it was the second diagnosis when I really faced my death. I faced my mortality. I, I shook off all that denial that I had been carrying around my whole entire life. And, uh, and I thought, okay, if I'm going to die at this time, then I don't want it to be of the stem cell transplant that I was being offered as my only chance to live. And that brought me really deep into a place inside myself that I never thought even existed, never mind that I would go there, and asked those really big questions about the meaning of life. Not that I hadn't done that. I'd already for nearly a decade been traveling to India every year. It wasn't my first rodeo. 
asking big questions, but all of a sudden it wasn't playtime anymore. Like I realized all of my life had been. And so miraculously at the same time, and life is so full of these kind of perfect time, you know, perfectly timed meetings, or you just get the thing that you need. And at that point, what I needed was the work of Carolyn Miss and her sacred contracts that had been published practically that minute. And it got me into the world of archetypes that I had studied about in university, but never really took it to heart. It was more, again, just like intellectual play for me. It seemed fun. And now I had the opportunity to put the, you know, put it to work and the rubber had met the road and it was time for me to see, okay, you know, I, I desperately needed to see what was sucking the life out of me. And then the, the long story short, I was able to see one archetype that was so desperately out of alignment that it was such a huge energy drain. And when I turned it around, I awakened that archetype and I stopped being, in my case, what was a rebel without a cause. I went from being a dying person to a living person practically overnight. And then bringing us full forward to the story that, that you're sharing this opening scene in my book, I had uh, been in remission for maybe four or six months. And next thing you know, I started to get invitations. I got an invitation to go and speak at a nurse's oncology conference because I was a sign of hope in what was actually a really hopeless profession for them. Uh, in fact, my oncologist that I met this day, this is another invitation I received to come and play music in the hospital wards as a, for work. So I was ready to work and I was ready to make money again after surviving. And uh, there I am in the cancer ward where I used to be sitting, receiving IVs and treatments and puking my guts out. And instead I'm holding my guitar and I'm playing like a little songbird singing songs for these people. And my oncologist walks by. I hadn't seen him since I refused treatment and, and walked away. And I just said like, hey, I won't use his name because I don't want to uh, spook any of his family. I just called out his name. And I said, hey, it's me. I didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is such yeah. a weird thing. And he just looked at me like he didn't recognize me. And I said, like, hey, it's Beth Martins. And he's like, yeah, I know. And it was just one of those jaw-dropping moments, like, this guy doesn't care. Right, yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, you know, and I don't, I don't mean to demonize him exactly with his story, but he did commit suicide the next year. And I have to imagine how desperate his life was, how depressing it was that he couldn't really help people to the extent that is possible. But, uh, yep, that's the, that's the journey that I've been on. <laughs> yeah, it's an incredible journey, and I'm repeating myself. I had to close the book because it was so emotional. And throughout your book, Journey, whereas you're unpacking the archetypes and how they can help in our worlds, you keep coming back to the cancer and the challenges. It's an incredible story. And uh, so, basically, your life choices had been draining, literally draining the life out of you, your prana, as uh, James True might call it. And then you had this comeback and the doctor, of course, symbolizes sort of the mechanistic science of this world, heartless and ultimately tragic. 
And you sort of symbolize how the embracing of life in your inner universes can fuel you. But science still says what, Beth? Well, you're just lucky. You're not a case study in the scientific world today, are you? Oh, no, exactly. <laughs> they just exactly. It. They completely dismissed it. You're exactly right. No, I was so uh, thinking, oh, they, they are just going to be really curious and interested and wanting to know. And I ended up getting myself on a committee at the hospital that was, he was posing to bring natural medicine and the conventional together at some level. They, because people kept coming in and saying, well, my naturopath said this and I should take that. And, uh, but it was literally just a, a stage. And I would go into this room. There was maybe a handful of doctors, three or four physicians. There was a few of us patient representatives and literally every time I spoke, they would laugh at me. They would shame me. They would like push me out of the room. It didn't take long, maybe three or four meetings. And I just said, okay, I'm out of here. Yeah. They just wanted Mm. nothing to do with it. To be fair, it's just not part of their training so that there's no point of intersection whatsoever. All it does is make them feel um, inadequate, which they are, but they don't want to feel that. But yeah, it's uh they want to yeah. know they're in control. And uh, yes, and through your journey or your, your tests, your tribulations with cancer, and of course you write how you had to sell your house, you had to move in with your parents, you had to do all these things in a way of, I mean, preparing for death, and then you chose you were going to prepare for life. But one of the issues which is so important, and you address this in your book, is the the paralyzing force of fear. How were you able to really face fear and turn it around? Well, every single day I'm still doing that. So it's it's (laughs) a club. (laughs) Yeah. Perfectly, perfectly relevant question. Yeah. There is uh, you know, fear is the enemy. It's kind of a cliche, you know, the fear itself. I think what was such a big revelation to me was that, you know, your inner world is not a given. It's not just coming at you. Um, You know, I'm not a victim to my fear. I am unconsciously generating my fear. It's not really coming from the outside. There can be all kinds of stimulus on the outside that seems like evidence for fear, but ultimately I have to create that experience. And if I am creating it, then I can also uncreate it. I can release it. I can let it go. And so most of the healing work and and why it's healing to work with archetypes is for that release um, process that when you see a shadow, when you see a, uh, another word for shadow that's less mystical, it's just a blind spot. It's just things that you don't see about yourself. Then just for seeing it, shining light on it, it's that shadow is half gone. It's no longer something that operates from the unconscious. And when things are operating from the unconscious, they show up like the enemy. But when things operate in the consciousness, it's it's not just the opposite. It's it becomes or or neutralizing it, it becomes like a superpower to you. So you start accessing the power of collective consciousness, which you were doing unconsciously as well. It's, it also packs that kind of power, but, but to the negative. And so by learning to go into fear, and especially the fear of dying, because that's the big kicker. That's, to me, 
why humanity is so hamstrung that you know every day people walk in fear not really knowing it because if they were aware of it it would be so disturbing that they couldn't function they couldn't just go and get a coffee and go to work that wouldn't be able to happen anymore uh, i spent the entire morning like i was on fire with fear today and boy do they have a massive breakthrough because i've got the i've got all the tools and i've got the technology to get past to the other side and today was like a little miracle because i've been seriously watching the markets to the my best of my ability i'm i'm not savvy in that arena but i can see what's happening with the economies i can see what's happening with this coronavirus that it's you know like a smoke screen for all of that real wrong stuff that's going on and i you know i've been working really hard in my business and my life and like you said writing this book and getting myself out there i feel like i'm finally getting to that place of being able to influence in the way that i want to be and then, you know, the apocalypse is hitting. <laughs> As like, you know, should I be working on the the next course that I'm creating or should I be growing food in a dome? And, you know, just like, okay, what's what exactly is going on here? So, and it seems very food-centered, people's fear, ultimately, because if we're not in control of that, then that is a terrifying point. And so I'm, you know, I take this big, long walk and, sunshine and i'm just releasing this fear and releasing the fear and releasing the more more fear that comes up underneath those fears and then i meet the guy who i've seen a hundred or more times probably more who runs all the community gardens around here i happen to be surrounded in a, a very beautiful rich region by the the river very fertile soil a lot of good growers in the area and I just decided to walk up to him and start talking to him today. You know, after so many years of seeing him, now I just had a conversation. It turns out he's pretty woke in the context of, you know, just he said, yeah, I saw chemtrails at 4 a.m. today. And I'm like, oh, this guy's smart. And he's tapped into all kinds of things that are important, like super important at the level of community. And then he says, oh, yeah, did you know Little, Little Sister Cafe They've got a, a, a vertical growing operation going on down there. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Little Sister Cafe is right downstairs from me. So I go in there and it turns out there's this whole grow up happening. They're, they've got the microgreens and like, you know, maybe a hundred different varieties of um, ultimately what, what spells food security to me. And they're my neighbors. So it was, it was this, I felt like it was such a gift of having gone head on and facing my fear that I was on fire with, getting through to the other side and all of a sudden these breakthroughs, and they're not even new breakthroughs because that guy's been in this neighborhood for a long time. This grow up has been beneath me already for a time. I just literally hadn't noticed it. I call it a grow up, just tongue in cheek. Like it's a business that sells microgreens. Um, it was all there, but I, because of the fear, I didn't have eyes to see. But all of a sudden, by going through that fear, having the courage to do that, you know, I have sudden, I have sudden new hope for this whole area that I live in. <laughs> Does that make any sense at all? 
No, I think it makes perfect sense. Like you said, Beth, it's the blinding. I think in AA, we have this cliche that fear means false evidence appearing as real. And it is true. Most of the fears we have, 99% are bullshit. That 1% we get right is usually the, you know, the tiger chasing us down the road. But 99% of the time, it's, uh, it's things that we make up in their head. And what do you tell your clients about fear? I mean, is this something that's been programmed? Is it a defense mechanism, a sort of psychosis? I mean, what is this sort of uh, odd fear that grips so many people and paralyzes them? makes them do wrong decisions, the, the worst type of division, mm -hmm. like mobs, or you're hearing now people are stockpiling on toilet paper because of the coronavirus. And I'm like, why? Is that toilet paper going to save your life in the prices? <laughs> yeah. Do people shit themselves when they're in quarantine or working from home? But anyway, what do you think? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, no, I love this question. Um, so that fear, it's kind of like an AI it's artificial, artificial intelligence. This is the best description I can see of it. Um, one of the people that I studied with, not, not, he's not alive anymore, but I've studied with his teachers, Lester Levinson. He had a, a great story that works for me. And it's that, you know, at some point in human, the, con the evolution of human consciousness, whatever that looked like, there was a point where we couldn't consciously go through every motion you know so if you had to consciously beat your heart and you had to consciously digest your food and all of those now what are autonomic functions in our in our bodies then you just couldn't get much done that your whole day would be like okay beat your heart again oh breathe <laughs> all that kind of stuff right and so we started manufacturing building these ais so that those things could happen without our conscious decisions and awareness going on so the decision was made and then it's done and then it just ran amok it, it became um putting everything on automation and and so it was like uh asking the automation to to ultimately protect us and save us from from death so that's that's what we've got operating in us 24 7 our three primary programs and you know your listeners don't have to believe me on this it's something that you you start checking if it's true or not the the program the want for love and approval is so tied to survival right that's the babies learn to be cute and to smile and to get love and approval because they know that it ensures survival if there's engagement with their caregivers the, the second big AI program is that want for control. That if you can't control, you know, if you can't get love and approval, then you're going to try to force the issue and then you're going to try to take control of the situation. And then the third program, which is the most deeply embedded in the consciousness, is the want to survive. And that's the same as the fear of not surviving. Uh, it's so painful to, to feel it because. It's, and I'm extremely familiar with this, it actually feels like you're dying. So we've mistaken this fear of dying for death itself. And that's one of those, you know, they're all lies that the, the fear or the want for love and approval, it's, it's a lie because the, the whole universe is made of love, right? So there's, there's no lack of this. But if you run the program that you lack love, that's all you see. You're blinded by that. 
doesn't matter how much love people are trying to give you or you would try to give yourself, it would just, it it doesn't land, it doesn't even stick. Um, Same with that want for control. Everybody's acting out of control, running for the toilet paper and, you know, wearing masks and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) And, uh, but the, the reality is that they're all in control, right? They wake up in the morning, they get out of bed, they put their socks and shoes on and go out and they walk out the door. Those are, those are in control beings, but their experience is out of control. So it, they may as well be out of control. And then the same with that want for survival. If you run around all day long wanting that, being afraid not to survive, then you, the tendency is to pull in the circumstances that are going to reflect that. And I feel like that's exactly what I did by you know, being a workaholic in my parents' firm, calling in my death, not, not because I was so stupid, but actually because I was so smart, that that's what was going to reveal the illusion of death to me. And then I could become free from that illusion and start living for other reasons other than fear. And ultimately, there's only one other reason other than fear to live is, uh, is from love. Well said, yes. Fear, wanting to control what we cannot control or what we won't be able to control for too long. So, yeah, you hit it on the head. And definitely before you went to your parents' business and you were, it was a PR firm. I can't even, I know PR is intense. And mm-hmm. like you write, you make a lot of enemies. Your father made a lot of enemies. And it's just, it's one of those seven days a week, long hours, uh, intense. But Before that, you were, and I don't want to get ahead too much to start describing archetypes, but it's important with your life. You were a true rebel. You ran away from home. You stole cars. You were just, (laughs) you were a troublemaker. Why were you a rebel before you decided to sell out to the yuppie lifestyle? Well, I, uh, I believe that that why is, you know, it's just the, it was my wiring. It was my blueprints. Uh, It's also my genealogy. I come from a long line of rebels. I love telling people that my great grandfather in Russia was arrested for antagonizing the government. He was, you know, he wasn't willing to sit back and just watch the regime take them down and starve them out. And uh, he was a fighter. He was willing to get out there and, uh, call a wrong a wrong so it's in my blood and it's in my bones but I did see that it actually got me into so much trouble as you're as you're saying you know just endless trouble I was I was a walking conflict waiting to happen I could just walk into a room and everybody would be upset <laughs> for one reason or another there she goes again with her mouth huh? <laughs> you know that's exactly it there she goes again and sometimes they would instead of talk about me behind my back, they would talk to me like they didn't realize I was right there. And I would get little snippets of like, yeah, there she goes again, you know, and laughing at me and making jokes about me and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, but because I was that rebel without a cause, I was often fighting for the wrong reasons, right? So if I didn't want to work, fighting seemed like a better idea. And this is, of course, all unconscious. I would never think to do that. Um, so that, you know, the rebel, they don't want to put the effort in, in when they're in that shadow place. Um, it's, you know, the, 
the whole rebel profile is just like the angry, angsty, um, you know, good for nothing, really just, just a, a fight waiting for a place to happen. So I was, I was definitely in that place. And then to cure it, right, because I saw that this is doing nothing but getting me in trouble. To the cure I thought at the time, which is not very conscious thought, but it was like, okay, Beth, be a good person now. Stop fighting. Don't run away. Uh, do what people are expecting of you, my parents, the schools, the system. You know, be a, an upstanding citizen. Get a job, pay taxes. Do something normal that people aren't going to think I'm a weirdo. You know, have the relationship with a normal person that I should never have had a relationship with, but, you know, I did it. <laughs> I had a kid and everything. So I, I just... I just suppressed the heck out of that rebel. I, I thought I could take it out and just be finished with it. But that was the big revelation that you can't actually take out the, you know, God's programming really, which is ultimately what that, that uh, archetype represents. You can't take it out. You can only send it to the dungeon of the unconscious. And that's where, as I said, it acts out and it turns into something that seems like the enemy trying desperately to get the attention, get, get my attention so that I could awaken to it because that's the purpose of existing at all is to become free, to awaken, to evolve the soul to whatever capacity is possible. Well said. So uh, I love what you said, an archetype, it's God's programming. Uh, is that how you would define archetype or could you tell us a little bit more about archetypes? Yeah, the the way that I see it, I in fact I just said God's programming for the first time, but I really like that. Me uh, too. Another <laughs> right on. Another thing that I w I often say is um, a spiritual and emotional blueprint, because there are ways to be through that archetype that are very unique and uh, and recognizable and have a clear language. Uh, I always say that. I'm never worried about a beginner coming my way that's never talked about archetypes before because we all have it in us. It's something that's you can't choose. Oh, I'll, I won't get archetypes. God, it somehow just is, is part of every one of us. And then it's just a matter of becoming aware of it. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a blueprint. It's like a hard wiring of a computer that you can do almost infinite creation within it but it's got its certain um maybe boundaries is is a word but they're actually not boundaries that are set in stone either because i notice that people who are on a path of awakening for a long time they do actually start to defy the boundaries of the archetypes and they become more whole Right, so archetypes still represent kind of a fractured reality where if you, as you know from reading through my book, the eight archetypes are there and they're artificially broken out one at a time, I go through them. And the point of doing that to break them out of the whole is to simplify the subject enough to be able to do some work. Because otherwise you hit this wall of connectivity but you hit it as a fractured person, a fractured psyche, and it can, 
feel like it's just absolutely unworkable. Like there's no way to even begin to have a breakthrough. So by taking the archetypes one at a time and just training yourself to know the language of them, you know how they sound when they're in the unconscious, you know how they sound when they're awake, and you're like a million miles ahead all of a sudden. Things that used to be a total mystery, or like for me, I was losing my life, losing all my energy, and it was just like, oh, the rebel, wow. And it was such a fast transformation. Now, you know, the work of it goes on and on and on, but I was able to get enough energy back from the unconscious that I saved my life because that's my, you know, my system needed energy to heal. And that was how I was able to give it that energy, so to speak, just by unsuppressing and not using my life energy to suppress as much. But it's that, uh, you know, the, the, the ultimate goal is that wholeness. So the more whole you become, the more you start defying and blurring the so-called lines between archetypes. So that was way off the deep end. I don't know if that <laughs> was No, <where>. it's wonderful. <laughs> I mean, as I was just thinking, I mean, Jung, obviously, you have Plato and his world of ideas. That could be the first time we have archetypes, and then later on the Gnostics and the Pleroma. But it's really Jung who... Uh, uh, pioneered it. I don't think he came up with it. I forgot who did, but it's only been, what, a hundred years? So some of these things are always evolving. For example, I personally like the idea of archetypes as uh, formless images that make up not just the subconscious, but reality itself. And I know I've talked to some other Jungians and they talk about, well, archetype is simply our instincts. It's these instincts that get passed down from generation. And humans, we've kind of shunted the instincts aside while the animal kingdom does very well with the instincts. Mm -hmm. There's many ways to see this because it's such a complex but useful idea. And I guess, what about you, Vance? How do you see the archetypes? Well, I kind of see them as like the building blocks of the universe, which is basically what you just said. So I was thinking about maybe, say, a piano, and each archetype is like a note, and uh, there are harmonious combinations and disharmonious combinations and little themes running in the background that can disrupt you and so forth. So building blocks, concepts related to the concept of qualia in psychology, the psychology of perception, qualia is the basic building block like color red or straight line or curved line and all these things when you combine them make experience so that's kind of how i see it beautiful yeah what do you think of our definitions beth <laughs> very good very good the more the merrier right because it's right. it's such a complex subject that any point of entry again that's to me it's always just create the point of entry for for somebody that oh i get that enough to begin this journey inward or, and, and even better to stay on the journey inward. There's a, there's only two rules in life. One is to get on your journey and two, to stay on it. Yeah, that's really well said. It reminds me one of my favorite sayings I like to say on the show and allegedly quoting Mark Twain. And that's when he said the two most important days are the day you are born and the day you find out why. And, and you have this wonderful quote by Rumi called his one thing. And let me quote it. It says, there is one thing in this world you must never forget to do. 
If you forget everything else, but not this, there's nothing to worry about. But if you remember everything else and forget this one thing, you will have done nothing in your life. I thought that was brilliant. What is your one thing, Beth? Yeah, I love this. That's it's such a great study to you know it's a sort of unanswerable. What do they call that? A cone where you know the riddle has no answer, but if you keep right. looking at it, it keeps it keeps giving information. So um, it's it's daunting, right? I I work with a lot of people to help them find their life purpose, and it's one of the most nebulous concepts because we're talking about it like it's a a noun. So that's the number one thing that's in the way there. Um, so, you know, the, the one thing is if I, if I cut this really short <laughs> as an answer, cause I could go on for a long time on this one, but the, the one thing is you, you know, it's pointing Rumi's talking about wholeness and that's the true nature of every single being. But as a result of the, the normal and unfortunately unnormal traumas of life, even the normal traumas are very unfortunate because they're unnecessary, There's some, there is some normal trauma, like loss is loss and it has to be faced. But going through those traumas is always splitting us, right? If there is pain that was too intense for the young child to feel, which is all, always the case, then they're going to split off from that pain. They're going to create just the way my body created a tumor full of cancer and put it off in, a, in its own little package. The, the psyche does the same thing with its pain. And that ends up resulting in a whole bunch of fractures in consciousness where it feels like there's a whole, you know, um, parade or orchestra of different voices inside your head. And that's where the archetypes are really beautiful because you can start to sort through those voices and you can start to identify the fractures. And, you know, but when, when, when you're looking at life purpose, you're looking at your one thing, what are you here to do that's not going to leave you with regret? Because I saw, I was on my, what I thought was my deathbed at one point in my journey after I was in remission the, the first time from all the chemo that I did. Uh, from the cancer, but after doing all that chemo, I saw myself, I saw who I actually am, I saw beyond all of the things that I was identified with in my life, I saw the wholeness of my being, I saw, I saw what I'm here to do as if. Now, did that mean I had, like when I woke up and I got a grocery list and I know who I am and I know what to do? It doesn't really. It's, it's just the beginning, that experiencing myself as whole, as complete, as independent of even my own body. I could lose everything, even my body, but I knew that I was whole and full of joy from that awareness. Then that's, that's the one thing. That's the purpose. That's the, the continuous breadcrumbs that life puts out in front of you. Um, you know, the, you could talk about if I talk about my one thing, it will sound different. You know, if I look back over the 20 years since I survived cancer, I've been very purposeful in my living. My, my life has been extremely meaningful, 
um, my tolerance for meaningless is very low. I just, that, that is <laughs> something, right? Like I just can't even take five minutes in a meaningless situation. Um, but it, it still would look different, right? My, my purpose, if you talk to me, say five or eight years ago, would have been to help empower women to take over the world. And now I have a completely new awareness as a result of what I've been through in the last couple of years, losing my father, uh, seeing the global agenda to take strong men down. And I, di I didn't stop being a, a champion for women. I still am. still work with women. I still help them build businesses and get past their fears of taking action in the world. But there's a whole new dimension to my purpose now to support King Heroes, such as yourself, to be out taking leadership in, a, in the way that actually only the masculine can do. Right. So, you know, there, there was another time I'd been to India eight times and I was so into yoga and yoga was the, the, the be all and end all. I was really crediting yoga to a great extent for all kinds of things in my life. And then you would have heard me just, you know, singing the praises of yoga. Now I don't talk about yoga. I don't even barely do it uh, unless I'm going to uh, go into rigor mortis and I, <laughs> where I resort to my <laughs> yoga. Uh, but, you know, so the, the one thing is a, is a constant shimmer and a constant change, but it's really, it's you. It's not, it's not the things you do. It's not your qualities. It's not your circumstances. Uh, it's, it's you and your wholeness. That's a beautifully said and uh, got so much I want to ask about this. And interesting you brought up about, again, the destruction of the male psyche in the West. And this has been a theme here on Aeon Bite about how they've slowly decimated the whole uh, men initiation apparatuses across the world. And it's done terribly. And uh, I think you and I agree with that. And it's interesting, mm -hmm. a, a mutual friend of Vance and I, Lawrence Gallien, was, he wrote a post and he was talking about how in medieval and ancient times, and this was from a University of Chicago study, women rulers were 25% likelier to start war colonize and conquer other nations so mm -hmm. the idea of the evil patriarchy doesn't really stand up of course women have been marginalized across history just like other minorities but i think you agree that today it's been taken a little too far hasn't it yes absolutely it's a total distortion of uh like i love the, the stat that you just said that don't don't think that women are so gentle and kind Margaret Thatcher, Hillary Clinton, Elizabeth I. There's a huge... Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Power killers, is power. It goes to Power is power, and killers come in all shapes and sizes and genders and all that kind of stuff, exactly. So, yeah, the, you know, I, I really thought that... I, I had a complete illusion that if women took over the world, we would have no problems. That was my solid reality. That was my truth, and I, I would shout it from the rooftops. But what I've seen now is that it has that, you know, that basically I was playing into the global agenda to take men down. Because if women gain their the power, and we're seeing that in the world now, that men are more and more disenfranchised and, uh, you know, chosen by the system and chosen for leaders. And women are more and more stepping into those roles. And all that does is weaken society. Right, that if the men aren't available there for doing, you know, if they're not respected, if they're not 
held up if their if their leadership is not followed then it's so easy to take these societies out like you don't even need to do anything we did it to ourselves so many so many single families single moms raising kids and you know how how do we raise kids women raise kids to be gentle and kind and nice and sweet and all of that kind of thing but we're not raising warriors we're not raising protectors hopefully that's in them and you don't kill it but this systematic insidious chipping away at the nature of the the masculine it it not only is killing men but it kills every woman's inner masculine because that's the nature of the masculine feminine archetype is that it's in all of us and so that's what i discovered that's how i really discovered all of this was that i was at war with my own inner masculine and it sh- you know showed up in my, the relationship with my father it showed up in my whole disposition towards men really feeling and believing they were all potential rapists and i've been raped and i've you know i've ha- i've got so-called evidence of that being true but at the end of the day the i found that war inside myself and i put a stop to it i just suddenly saw like i, I don't need to uh spend my lifeblood energy this way anymore and the amount of peace that came over me and the uh energy that flooded my system and that shows up in terms of you know being able to take action and productivity um, by embracing that masculine i actually became way more feminine because that's you know I, I was i was called a ball breaker in in the corporate world that's that was the nickname they had for me i didn't know until i finally met somebody on the outside that told me <laughs> was brave enough to tell me Right, I was so masculine, and I still uh, am very. You know, I can come up with that masculine action-taking energy. I, I have a very masculine role with my women clients, for example, helping them contain their feminine wild and create structure and all of the you know nuts and bolts they don't want to deal with. But ultimately, what I was able to do was come into a much softer place with my life. You know, the evidence was the way that that my relationships healed especially with my son right because that that every man represented something of that masculine i was at war with and it was like night and day i went from a person that was just automatically disrespecting men to somebody who had a great deal of reverence for any man that's willing to step into their power because it's uh, just the bravest thing ever yeah, I think that we agree, Beth. I think even Vance and I agree, although I remember Vance and I were having this talk and Vance might be more integrated than all of us because he, uh, Vance basically, didn't you tell me this, Vance? He said, I'm getting so old, I'm wearing a pussy hat. <laughs> no. you, you've come to, no, that wasn't okay. me. <laughs> anyway, anyway, no, I agree too. And I think uh, what uh, backing up too, I think it's very important. You were talking about Rumi and who I am and Mark Twain, the most important day in your life, but something that, and you address this in the alchemist archetype, Beth, is that we also don't want to over-identify with 
things in our life. Like you said, some people start identifying as a lawyer, as a doctor, as a mother, a father, and that that itself sort of feeds into the fear and traps us even more, doesn't it? I mean, you, you try to help your clients to break out of that and see possibilities. Right. That Again, that anything could be conscious or unconscious. So that if you are, say, in the, the role of a mother and you're doing it unconsciously, and you resent your kids, and maybe you're actually trying to hold your kids back from fully developing and becoming maybe even better than you at this or that. Uh, that definitely is a is a kind of jail for you and your kids in that circumstance. But if you awaken with that mother and you use it for the powers that it has in a very deliberate way through choice, through conscious choice, because choice is always happening then it becomes something that it's like, you know, the, the, the unconscious experience would be that some force is using you, almost like you're possessed. And then the conscious experience is that you, it's your, your tool to use. It's your energy. It's your, um, you know, maybe palette that God's given you this color of mother and you can paint with it as you like and have fun with it. It's kind of like music structure where some people really reject music structure like somehow that's impinging on their freedom but if you get into the structure say just like the basic rhythm of music because i'm a musician and and you let that rhythm be solid if you have even better example if you have a solid rhythm section a good drummer and a good bass player and they hold that down for you they hold the, the masculine structure then within it there's infinite possibility for, for creativity and the wildness and spontaneity. So the, you know, the jail really is just the, the unconscious, the, the desire to stay asleep, unfortunately, is really powerful. Part, part of the reason for that is that reality is very painful. The, you know, the real world, when you wake up to what's actually happening, then it's almost unbearable. And that's why most people are trying so hard to stay asleep at all costs. Agreed and very Gnostic. In fact, you have another quote in uh, your chapter, The Child Archetype. And of course, you say this is how our journey begins. But some people, uh, they mischaracterize or they make mistake with the child archetype because as you're saying, it's it's hard to look at the horror of reality and the impermanence of reality. But as you say very wisely, and I really liked it, is that the child doesn't lose his innocence. What he loses is his ignorance. Big difference, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Denial mm -hmm. is not de denial isn't being innocent. Let's put it that way. <laughs> which is the world? Exactly. It's a really fine fine distinction there but uh the feeling of innocence is uh is tragic to lose right that's why it's so damaging to children to say these day and age when they're, they're trying to normalize pedophilia and they're putting you know getting school aged children to watch people have sex and you know they're 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 damaging their innocence but luckily again nothing dies it's it's all there for the recovery i think I think ultimately death is possible, but it's uh, God, you know, the, the God's creations don't go down easy. They're really hard to kill. 
but uh, yeah, the, 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 the point of realization for me was awakening to, uh, in particular, if I just tell this story about a woman who came through my door, she changed my life forever. Yeah, just on the, yeah ju- just on the heels of my mom passing away, which after losing a second parent, for those of your listeners who've been through that experience, you know, it can be very devastating. It leaves you orphaned. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing. Yeah. Lie, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So the child, mm, there you go. Yeah. So the child archetype comes up in technicolor around that experience and it uh, just knocked the wind right out of me. The, the week before my mom passed, and of course, you never know when death is going to happen. We didn't know if it was going to be that week or that year at that point. But she went down very fast. The week before, I had a woman come through my door identifying me as someone who could help her build her business. And she turned out to be a victim of satanic ritual abuse and human trafficking. And it wasn't an isolated incident it was intergenerational it had been passed down for centuries through her lineage she was the only person of her family who um, survived and woke up remembered what happened to her most of uh, the people that go through that level of trauma never awaken to it they end up dead on the streets drug addictions and you name it and uh, so for the first time in my life, it was the opportunity to see part of the world that I had, out of that childlike ignorance, decided I didn't want to look at. And to be fair, you know, there's only so much suffering that you can take in without destroying yourself. So there's, there is a fine balance where these days I'm not reading those stories anymore. I'm not looking for that evidence of evil i i do know it's there but i'm not afraid of it anymore i've looked not only death in the face but i've looked torture in the face i've looked looked at you know the horrendous nature of i don't believe it's humanity i don't believe that's human nature doing that i believe that is the un, unnatural forces that we're dealing with but I couldn't look away anymore because here was a living, breathing person who needed my assistance and I needed to understand her situation. She was not just building any old business selling widgets. She was turning around and helping people heal themselves. So here I was with not only having lost both my parents within a few years, but my whole entire worldview came crashing down around me. I saw that everything I was being told in the news and the media was a lie. That wasn't exactly new to me, but I had no idea how extensive the whole thing was. Um, looking at the, you know, of course, actually everything started to make sense, which was really refreshing because my whole life that had inspired that rebel energy of no energy, now all of a sudden everything made sense, right? If, if, if they are actually trying to kill us, then it's all perfect that that explains why there's poison in the food and poison in the water and poison in the air. Exactly. And right. Yeah, it's yeah. like, it was so beautiful. That was the one beautiful side effect. It was like, Oh wow. Everything makes sense all of a sudden. <laughs> but, uh, but it did, it did leave me crying on the floor, useless, like, you know, so, so deeply in grief of all of these things. I barely had a, I luckily did have one very close colleague and and friend that I could speak to about these things, but otherwise I might've gone insane. And uh, so, you know, the worldview changed the, 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 
illusion, illusion shattered. And I was weeping and crying like, oh, I've lost my innocence. I, you know, the, the, this child has taken such a big hit. And then I just, I just shook my head for a second. I went, no way. You didn't lose your innocence. You lost your ignorance. You just opened your eyes to very painful realities. And it was at that moment, I just, I stood up and I got my, you know, I, I leapt right from the, the child to the warrior and I got my fight back on and I got mad about what was happening instead of being lost in despair. And uh, that, that uh, rebel warrior anger has much higher energy. It's got capacity for action. You can, you can be very useful rather than useless in the apathy and despair of that, that child gets stuck in. And the journey, the journey began, and then, and then the journey itself was revealed to me. That the hero's journey that I had studied about in university all of a sudden started to inhabit my blood and my bones. I could feel it. I could sense it. I could work with it in addition to the individual archetypes that I had already discovered at various points in my life. I highly recommend the audience to read Beth's book, A Journey, and I'll have the address on our show notes. But for those listening, what is your address or where can they find out more about your work, Beth? Yes, I actually created a, a page special for your audience. So they can go to bethmartins.com forward slash Aeonbyte, so A-E-O-N-B-Y-T-E. And uh, no, no, all one word in Aeon Byte. Did I spell that right? <laughs> no, I think I did. Pretty sure I, I did. I think you did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Send me the link. I'll, I'll post it. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Perfect. And so there you can find the uh, King Hero Archetype Quiz. You can find the Merpreneur Archetype Quiz. It, you know, I'll let you choose. If it's a woman that identifies more as the King Hero like I do, then feel free to do that. Um, the, I'll put the link to my book there to make it simple. I'll also, for your audience, put an application to work one-on-one -on -one with me in a 30-minute session that I usually charge $200 for. And this way that they can apply. I'm sorry I can't offer to every single person who applies, but for those of you that are really serious about making a change in your life for the, for the better, for you know, discovering your life purpose, your one thing, and being valued for that, then I'm happy to jump on a call for 30 minutes and see how your archetype is either working for you or against you, what your next steps are, and how to get past the obstacles that you might be facing. Wonderful. Well, you heard it here. But uh, we are at the end of this hero's journey. Uh, first, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company. Oh, it's a great show, I think, and heard a lot of great stuff. So thank you, Beth. Oh, totally my pleasure. Yes, Beth. Thank you very much for coming on Aeon Byte and uh, talking about your book. And uh, good luck with this excellent work. Again, audience, it's Journey, a map of archetypes to find lost purpose in a sea of meaninglessness. So, Beth, thank you and good luck with everything. Thank you so much, Miguel. It's just been a total honor to be here. May I add just one quick thing? Of about, course. Uh, yes, yeah, when, when you purchase my book now at my website, it's on Amazon, but I prefer you come to my website. Uh, one, and, and the reason is that I'm offering a way to build community around the conversation about archetypes. So when you purchase my book, I don't know if this will be forever or not, uh, a limited time. Right now you get inclusion in the archetype study group that happens every two weeks. It has yet to start up a, 
a new chapter, but it's very quick coming up in the next month or so. And uh, so you can get on a, a Zoom call and uh, you know, it's just the conversation. There's no coaching associated with this. I'm not teaching, but, but we're talking and, and just being present to that, the way that God is calling us through that archetype. And it's a very high, beautiful conversation. So that's something that comes along with my book when you purchase at my website now. Wonderful. Well, again, you heard it here and check it out. But again, thanks, Beth. And we look forward to the next time we can have a conversation. Thank you so much. And there you have it, my beloved truth seekers. The first part of our remarkable interview with Beth Martins. What a story and what insights she provides that are more important than ever in these Gnostic times in a Philip K. Dick world. In our second part, Beth discusses whether archetypes have consciousness and can you actually call upon an archetype like you would a spirit or a demon. On this similar note, Beth grants her fascinating views on what exactly are demons, as well as her view on Jung's shadow. She'll also talk about her own archetype of the mermaid, and I'm sure secret sunners will be more than interested. We'll shift to doing archetypal work exercises, as well as more on how to overcome the challenges of life personal or global. Then she'll share about her work in general, which is truly unique but highly effective. Biglinosis. Miss it not, and please become a member of Patreon at Patreon for all this heresy. It really helps grow this red pill cafeteria. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle. You won't find this Gnostic content or many of our guests anywhere in cyberspace or meat space. Damning your soul has never been this cheap, but you'll get your spirit back. Membership includes full access to the archives with more than 13 years of high-quality interviews and full episodes of my vlog, The Abraxas Brief. You'll also get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and my Discord channel. Even some support in the form of donations like some shekels to PayPal or the U.S. mail really, really helps. I also have an Amazon wish list. Don't forget me books like Voices of Gnosticism or Other Voices of Gnosticism. I can't do it without you, and the show has grown to the point advertisers want to appear, but they're rejected as I only work for you and only you. You can do so many wonders, I just know it, and are so full of imagination in this war against reality our higher selves have already won. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true archetypal self. Hello and goodbye as always.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.